Because of the happenings of the last decade or so, we have all become more cynical and less innocent. Is this bad? Isn't knowledge power? And we became more knowing chiefly from gossip. Do we really still want the kind of press that operated a gentleman's agreement with the Congress and White House and told us little white lies about the people we were to elect? Isn't it better to know the truth? Shouldn't we examine the feet of clay of our peerless leaders? Wasn't it better when Betty Ford ended speculation about her substance abuse and publicly declared it, thereby becoming a role model? I have a little theory of my own. I think gossip is one of the great luxuries of a democracy. It is the tawdry jewel in the crown of free speech and free expression. You don't read gossip columns in dictatorships. Gossip is for leisure, for fun, for entertainment, for relaxation. Should the day come when we are enduring big black headlines about war, famine, terrorism, or natural disaster, then that kind of news will drive gossip underground and out of sight. Then we won't have gossip to kick around any longer. And just like Richard Nixon said when he reminded us that we wouldn't have him to kick around any longer, we'll all be sorry. At age five or six, I learned you couldn't trust the ice. Not that I'd ever seen any ice in Fort Worth, a city with an occasional blue norther, but generally warm and pleasant weather. Still, I realized that the ice above Alaska to the North Pole could open up and swallow you. I saw it happen right up there on the movie screen to the actress Lenore Ulrich. The movie was Frozen Justice, and it must have been early 1929 because I was with Dot. She was our maid. The Depression hadn't struck us yet, so she was still with us. Dot and I were sitting in the colored balcony, although she had tried in vain to get me to sit downstairs in the white section. Black maids with white children were allowed to exempt themselves from the segregation rules back in the late 20s. Otherwise, segregation was a rigid reality. I still tried always to drink from the fountain labeled colored. This wasn't my sense of justice so much as my insistence on showing off and being different. Usually, some indignant white adult would yank me away as if I were on the edge of a precipice. Down deep in my bones, just as the flickering movie screen influenced me, so the all-pervading black-and-white question haunted my childhood. I was totally fascinated from early childhood with what the great jazz musician Mez Mesro would later term the race in his famous book, Really the Blues. Black people were my secret passion. I wanted to sit separated with them at the movies. I was enthralled with how they looked, their talk, their humor, their food, their music, their laughter, and the terrible way most of them had to live, without seeming even to notice it. I was, of course, only a white princess in a paternalistic, racist society, but I didn't know that. Black people were extra good to little white children. They seemed actually to like and really care for us. After all, we had not yet grown up to be monsters and masters. Dot would always sigh and take me up to the balcony. Your daddy wouldn't like this, she'd say. Dot herself wasn't black. 
She was coffee-colored, and later, when I began to see Lena Horne on the screen, I would get Lena and Dot all mixed up in my head because my own fabulous mammy was such a lovely, slim creature, very like Lena. There were only three places I felt at home as a child, 1919 Hemphill Street, where I'd been born, the Travis Avenue Baptist Church, where I went every Sunday, and the Tivoli Theater, which was a passion.